in this episode of Savannah, Georgia, Anything But Ordinary. I was always intrigued by eccentric people because they, those people, they create their own personas. What happens in Savannah is, you know, the eccentric people know that they are appreciated, if only because they get people something to talk about. So that encourages them to be stranger to stranger. I think that uh, what's unusual about Savannah should be encouraged. What makes it different from other cities should be encouraged. In this episode, we sat down with a guest who hardly requires introduction, John Barrett, author of the highly praised New York Times bestselling book, Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil. In this exclusive virtual interview, Mr. Barrett allows us to peek behind the veil of his experiences living in Savannah among an evocative cast of characters and writing what many locals simply refer to as the book. Find out what Jim Williams was really like, what the future might have in store for the iconic story, and why Savannah should, in his words, embrace the oddballs. Take a listen. Well, I was overwhelmed by the beauty of the play. By the, it's spectacular. As a matter of fact, I happened to go, by sheer chance, the third week in March. And that tends to be the moment when the azaleas really pop. Most colorful, bloom, and it's, the whole city is alive with color, and uh, that's exactly the moment I arrived in Savannah. So uh, the beauty overwhelmed me. And then, of course, there, was the, uh, there were the squares, one after the other, uh, that no other city has, quite, quite like Savannah's. Um, it was almost like an enchanted paradise. It was warm, sunny, uh, and, and, and I, I soon learned that there's something in bloom in Savannah all year long, even if it's winter. There's something in bloom, and this was uh, uh, um, this was the peak of the azaleas. Uh, and also, uh, then I began to meet people, and they were charming, almost every one of them. Uh, and that struck me as marvelous and uh, inviting. And then I began to meet characters that I thought, hmm, that's a good story. That's a good story. So Savannah had all the right things to begin with. The stunning visual, the charming and interesting people, and um, that's about it. It was warm. <laughs> I like that too, coming from New York. It, it was uh, the warm climate it was perfectly uh, uh, and uh, perfectly the kind of thing I wanted because uh, in New York we have very very cold winters, not in Savannah. What is it that you think about Savannah specifically that manifests such? incredible casts of people and 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 just rich characters and and personalities here in the city well it's a small town and it's in the south and those two facts combine to produce uh the kind of characters that i met uh because it's a small town and in the south there's an emphasis on gossip southerners love to gossip and what do you gossip about more than anything else other people. <laughs> uh, it's being a small town and being gossiped about if you have any kind of quirk that people know about and then they talk about it. And you know they're talking about you if you're one of those people. And so the the eccentrics among the Savannians know that they are entertaining other people by being as strange as they are. And so they only try to outdo themselves in strangeness. That's what I think. And they know they're being appreciated. They know they're loved because they're oddballs. 
And not many cities, in New York, somebody who behaves strangely would be shunned. Then people stay away, well, what was he all about? But in Savannah, they are outdoors. Savannah loves its eccentrics. Yes, yes, it does. It's very much full of eccentrics. And, and the really cool thing about the book is that it not only illustrates these eccentric people and their stories, it's also very historically focused. Um, I, I really appreciated that reading it about how Savannah came to be the way that it is today. It's not just about present day Savannah, but it also touches on a lot of the historical events that took place and led to what the city is. Was that intentional or did you feel that that was just necessary just in providing backstory or, or did you want it to be kind of historically focused, focused as well? Well, I wanted Savannah to exist in a continuum. I want, it, it exists not all by itself floating in space. It, it has a history, it has a backstory, it has uh, traditions and particularly Savannah has traditions, all cities do, but particularly small ones. And Savannah has lots of rich traditions. And I wanted to, those that I encountered, I wanted to uh, make very clear. In uh, writing the book, I wanted the book to, to, to uh, include the contemporary historic aspects of Savannah. And the murder trial of Jim Williams was such uh, an event. Uh, and. And I was, so I spread out the coverage of the trial, the whole case, to include a lot of different people who, who were involved in it or in the trial uh, or in some way tangentially involved to people in the story. Uh, and by doing that, by including other people other than the main characters of this uh, murder case, uh, I was able to provide, you know, present a, an encapsulation of uh, Savannah because there are all sorts of people who uh, I could pull into the story in, by doing that. Um, I also, Jim Williams, uh, his main, uh, when he agreed to, to uh, talk to me, his main purpose was to get his story out. He said, I want to get my story out. So I'll tell you anything you want to know. And I had incredible access to Jim. Uh, many, many times I was in his house and we had dinner uh, and he, he took me around. Also, he wanted me to get the most um, amusing and informative story in my book so people would not be bored. So one evening, as I say in the book, he called me up and he said, I want you to meet a friend of mine. Are you doing anything this evening? I said, no. He said, well, come over, you know, eight o'clock and we're going to go somewhere. And I went over to his house and we got into his car and he started driving over the bridge into South Carolina. And that's the evening when I met uh, the uh, Minerva, the voodoo priestess that he loved to, uh, to pay to cast spells on his behalf. Not that he believed those things. He just liked her mental energy. Um, and, and of course, uh, voodoo in, in, in the area around Savannah is very, very common. And I, as a, as a, as a, author looking for a good story i was wildly excited by it and i loved that evening going out to see minerva and i saw him many other times since but uh, that so that's that all adds to the historic relevance and the background of savannah i i wanted to include as much of that as possible it wasn't just about one person who shot and killed another person they all exist in a context yeah and culturally it, it spans such a large spectrum of 
diversity of people. It's it's really in, an incredible tapestry of a story. Do you ever reread the book just for enjoyment or is it usually for editing purposes? And, and how many times do you think you've actually read the whole thing? While I was writing the book, I read it and 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 read it, and read it as I wrote it so that I would get everything right and smooth and all the sentences would be smooth and the transitions would be uh, you know, uh, easy to, to follow. Um, so in, in the process of writing, I constantly rereading, not the whole book, but chapters, paragraphs, pages. So, and I read it many, 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 I lost count. So once it was uh, finished and set in type, I read it one more time to proofread. I mean, they were proofreaders, uh, the publisher had proofreaders, but I wanted to go through it and proofread. So I read from beginning to end while proofreading. And that is the last time I read it from beginning to end, but it's not the time, last time I read it because after the publication, I would constantly be reminded of something, someone would ask me a question, and while I could almost recite the book by heart, I would go back to the book and read that section or that chapter. In the book, as it as it reads from your perspective, it really you have a sense of being kind of stepped back from the action and, and just watching it really unfold as an observer. Um, there are certain scenes, like I think about the uh, the fraternity party that Lady Chablis crashed, where it's clearly you're one of the main characters happening in all the action. But when it was actually happening in real life, did you often feel that you were kind of stepped back just watching everything unfold? Or did it feel very immersive? Um, and then later you wrote it more with a, a kind of... Um, observant tone. Well, I definitely was an observer, but I was a privileged observer, I'll put it that way, mm -hmm. because Jim had told his lawyer, Sonny Seiler, to talk to me and to let me in on their discussions about the case. So I was, as I say, a privileged observer. Sonny Seiler confided in me all the way through the case because he's, he knew I was interviewing everybody. He knew I knew all the aspects of the case, all the facts. And there were occasions where I had something that I thought he might kind of want to know. Not, no secrets anybody told me, but, but facts in the case. And I would say, what about that? What about that? And he thought that that was of use to him. And Jim definitely wanted me to know everything. So uh, it was a very unusual position for an observer reporter to be in. And I was very fortunate. I liked Jim a lot. You see, I'll tell you something. Jim, uh, I always, through, through this whole thing, I always thought Jim was guilty. I thought he killed him, uh, killed Danny. Uh, not, he didn't plan on killing him, but he very definitely did shoot him, uh, knowing that he would probably kill him when he shot him. So that's murder. But um, there were many, many aspects of Jim Williams' personality that I admired enormously. He was, number one, a genius. He really was. He knew his antiques. He was a student of uh, American antiques. Um, he was passionate about that. He was also passionate about Savannah. He knew Savannah history better than most people I met in Savannah. And uh, he was a very good storyteller. He was, he was a terrific, spellbinding storyteller. And some of the stories involved himself and the case he was you know, entangled in. Um, he, he was charming. He, uh, let's see, he, he was compelling in so many ways. Uh, he did have a, you know, a sort of harsh side to himself, but he grew up in the, in the country and he fended for himself for years um, and he had uh, a strength of character. 
so uh, he, as I say, he had many good qualities, and uh, that comes out, I think. And he did, he did uh, restore a lot of Savannah houses. I mean, many, maybe a hundred. He he thought it was he was passionate about that, and I and I, I think that comes out in the book a little bit. I don't dwell on it, but I mentioned that that's the case. Um, so he was, um, you know, he was a, ter- a terrific character to have to have to base a book around because he, there were so many aspects to his character. He also had a terrific sense of humor. He was hilariously funny. Not much of that comes out in the book, maybe a little bit, but not much. Um, but his intelligence is pretty pretty easy to see. Um, in the movie of the book, uh, I don't think that. Uh, there's much of his humor in there, but I have to say he deserves credit for his great sense of humor. He was very, he was a good storyteller. What I'm saying. Uh, would you say that he was? And this, I'm sure, is a question you've had many times before. But would you say he was your favorite character in the book, or do you not have favorites? There are like children that you all well, love yeah, equally but differently. Do have favorites? Jim was the central character. He was great. He was great help to me. He would point out things to me. He and and he explained this, what's Savannah's history to me and wh- how his part in it, and uh, for that reason he was probably the most important character for me, and he certainly is the central character in the book. But the most fun was Shibli, no question. And before uh, my book came out, nobody in Savannah knew who Shibli was. I bumped into her outside the apartment house I was living in, on uh, on the park. Um, and she started talking to me, very funny. So, but most people in Savannah did not know her. It was people who went to her club and saw her act who knew her and they were crazy about it. So after I met her, I asked people who, you know, who went to that club all about her. And they said, she's wonderful, she's hilarious, lover. So that's how that all happened. Um, um, you know, I, I stumbled on characters, and sometimes I was introduced to characters. Some people would say, "You got to meet so and so," and that always—not always, but often—led to a, a very worthwhile character, good for the book. That's interesting. Were there any characters that ended up getting cut from the book, or any stories? You know, no, and I'll tell you why. I didn't have a, a contract when I started writing this book. I thought I don't want to be under some pressure, having accepted, uh, you know, an advance and however big it was, if it it was going to be one, I didn't want to owe anybody a book. I wanted to write it at my own pace. And so I did. And it took about seven years. I was, one year I only wrote, you know, something like 50 pages. And other other times I wrote 150 in a year or even more. But I, I was not pressured and I didn't have to rush. So any character I wanted in the book, I, I fit into the book. I didn't have to cut anybody out. That wasn't true in my second book. My second book, I had a big advance and uh, that's a book about Venice. And I had a deadline. And even though I was a year and a half late, I did finally turn the book in. And I had to leave one wonderful character out because I didn't have a chance. I'm like, I'm my fault that I was late. So I, I, one wonderful character I had to leave out. But I wrote a piece about her afterwards in a publication. And uh, I'm sorry about that. But there's nothing in Savannah that I regret. I don't really, or in the book, this is a, quite unusual for an author to be able to say. But I really don't think I miss anything I wanted to do. 
uh, certainly didn't take any characters out. It's really extraordinary too, because on the flip side of that, there are so many characters and so many stories and, and, but nothing is superfluous. Everything in the book adds to the story or adds to um, the, the, the portrait that you're painting of Savannah. Uh, it's, it's really incredible. Um, you mentioned a little bit your, the night that you met Minerva and, and I specifically, as I was reading in, is where I came up with this next question. Um, how, did you ever get into any situation that you just thought, what in the hell is going on? How am I going to get out of this one? What am I doing? Um, or did you just kind of go with the flow and, and trust that, it, you know, ah, we'll, we'll come out of this okay on the other end? But there were certain times I know I would have been kind of like, oh, gosh, what is up with these people? <laughs> um, no, I didn't have any any feeling like that. Or, yes, all the time I have some, what's going on? What is going on? <laughs> About so much the better because I wanted the book to have all kinds of surprising people and events. And so, if there were, if suddenly this story or took a swerve and a turn unexpected, fine. And the characters, the crazier the better, you know, because I, as I said, like eccentric characters are the lifeblood of Savannah. So, I never pinched, I never, I never thought, have I got, what have I gotten myself into? The only time I might have felt that way was if I, I found myself on a dead end on a boring story. <laughs> Almost never happened. Some people, yeah. long interviews with who didn't have anything to say, well, okay, then that was the end of that. But no, I never had the feeling that I'd gotten into deep or I didn't know what was happening or I got into some really boring end of a story. It just didn't happen that way. Savannah was, um, just kept giving. It was a gift that keeps on giving. It's wonderful. Um, uh, so, no, I had to pinch myself to to to, be, to remind myself that I was in a real place. It wasn't a fantasy, and these these the people and the place were real, <laughs> and so I could write about them as I found them. What a treat! What a what a treat that has to be. It kind of makes makes your job a little bit easier, I guess, with the storytelling. Uh, one of our favorite, one of any reader's probably favorite, most interesting characters would be Joe Odom. Um, what was he like in, in person? Um, he just was such a larger than life uh, personality and, and was one of these people that maybe, you know, got himself into some pretty wild situations. Um, what was your first impression of him and, and what was he like? He was wonderfully popular in Savannah. You have to realize or remember that he performed at Emma's bar so he was frequently at the piano and singing. He was a singer, he was very handsome, he was charming, he was very genial, he was always upbeat, friendly, uh, outgoing, generous. People were always going over to his house and, or sleeping over on the couch or something. Um, so he, he was better known, Chablis wasn't known before the book came out. She wasn't known outside that club that she performed in. But Joe was a, a very prominent character in Savannah. Um, he got into some legal troubles here and there, but it was always with a smile on his face. And one time he was sued by some antiques dealer. He bought something from the antiques store. This is in the book. And um, he owed the guy, you know, a lot of money. And so the man was suing. And there was a court, there was a trial about the lawsuit against Joe. And he showed up, um, at, this, at, the, at the trial, 
And he was he went over and shook the guy's hand who was suing him. Big smile. And um and the and the and the guy who was suing him said, I really hate to do this. And Joe said, No, it's, it's quite all right. I understand. It's wonderful. And, and then before he, he the thing was over that day, he um he said, you know, you've got this uh, piece of furniture. I'd love to have it. And the guy said, oh, sure, you can have it. I'll have it delivered to you tomorrow. So Joe had such charm, people forgot that they were angry at him. And that's the way he was. Uh, and he was an only child. It's part of how he got to be the way he was, I guess. He had an adoring mother and father. And, um, and he just grew into a very self-confident, easygoing, charmer that's what he was and well known in savannah he was a character who couldn't walk down the street without greeting people and they'd be him hey hi joe how you doing? that kind of thing the very haunting cover of the book um which is just beautiful it's f- f- photographed by jack lee who is a local photographer here in savannah what can you tell us about how that became the cover and and the story behind um capturing that that moment and, and choosing it for the cover of the book. Sure. Um, I had a meeting with my editor at Random House, the publisher of the book, and I said, and the art director, and I said, you ought to consider taking a picture in Bonaventure Cemetery, which to my mind is the most beautiful place in Savannah. It's not, it's underappreciated. By that, at that point, nobody was, tourists weren't going out there. They weren't, they weren't being hyped on uh, Bonaventure. They should have been, now they are. But uh, I said, you ought to go out there, have a, a photographer take some, some haunting pictures in uh, Bonaventure. And, I, and they said to me, well, what about the house? What about Jim Williams' house? What about that, that curving staircase? <clears throat> I said, well, that would be a lovely picture. I don't think it would be, it'd be as evocative as, as Bonaventure. And also, I don't think you're going to be able to get in because Jim's sister, by that time, Jim's sister was sort of antagonistic to the whole thing. Uh, so they didn't even bother trying to get um, into the house to take a picture. But they said they, they picked Jack Lee uh, as the, the local photographer who would, they get the, who would get the assignment. And I said, that's great. He's a very, very good photographer and he's he takes wonderful moody shots um outdoors uh in savannah and doesn't take pictures of mansions really so they sent him they didn't tell him where to go and they they, they said that our, the author particularly likes bonaventure cemetery so jack lee and i don't know how this happened but jack lee had i think three days to get it done i don't know why it was, suddenly it was such a rush um and Toward the end of the last day, we were beginning to get a little bit dusky. He found the bird girl and he took that picture. And he went home and he went uh, uh, and he developed the picture. And his wife said, Oh, that's wonderful, but you can do better than that. So go back into the, uh, into the dark room and see what you can do. So that's when he went back into the dark room with that photograph and created that sort of aura around the bird girl, sort of glow that surrounds her and makes her kind of surreal. Uh, so it was his wife's suggestion, starting with the really terrific photograph, his wife suggested that you ended up with this very haunting photograph. When I, I, had, I didn't pick it, I mean, what happened was uh, I didn't know what 
he was taking a picture of. I knew that Jack Lee was out there somewhere doing something. Suddenly, I, I got a call from my editor and said, we got the photograph. We, we got the cover. And she sent me the cover that you see. And I, I couldn't believe how gorgeous it was. It was just wonderful. And I said, I couldn't have hoped for anything half as good as this. I'm so pleased. It's wonderful. And it did its work, I have to say. It's now, um, it can't be, it, it's, uh, it's part of the book, almost as much as the book itself. So It's turned the bird girl into her own, kind of its own attraction almost. I mean, obviously, you know that they had to remove it and it's now in the Telfair Museum and people still come and go to the Telfair Museum and view it. And, and people, people are constantly asking questions about where can I get a miniature bird girl statue and just kind of really um, made that its own its own character almost of the book is, is the cover. Yeah. When it was installed in the uh, Telfair, suddenly the Telfair started having huge crowds come to look at it. Each, each person paid $6 to get into the museum. And the next time I went there, one of the docents said to me, thank you for the bird girl. It's supporting the museum now. People love the book. People, a lot of people read the book before they come to Savannah. They, they pick up, when I first came to Savannah, when I was 14, I bought a copy on River Street and took it home and read it. Um, I still have it at my parents' house somewhere. I remember, actually, I have to tell you this story. It's kind of funny. I, I was reading it by the pool, and I accidentally dropped it. It was paperback, and I dropped it in the pool. And I made my mom blow dry every single sheet and put it between stacks of books. And as soon as it was done drying, I just picked it right back up and kept reading it. And it was such a great story. And it, I felt so much like it was I brought the part of Savannah home with me that I could never part with it. And and so I still have it. But, um, but yeah, I, I think a lot of people read it either before or after or while they're here. Do you think it should be required reading, kind of uh, very highly suggested reading um, to kind of really getting into the, the nitty gritty of what Savannah's really like? It's not really what you come and you see in the first couple of days if you come on a weekend getaway or something. It really takes you a lot deeper than what you see on the surface. Well, uh, I'd hardly require the reading, but I'd advise <laughs> it. I'd say, you know, if you want to get a taste of Savannah and get into it very quickly, the book will help you do that. But um, I also noticed uh, some years ago, the Georgia uh, what is it, Society for the Book or, or Committee for the Book, what's it, mm -hmm. quasi um, um, public uh, groups, they came up with a list of the Georgia's top 25 books that every Georgian should read, right? And, and Midnight was one of them. Uh, so was The Color Purple, and so was Deliverance, and Gone with the Wind, and Member of the Wedding by Carson McCullers, uh, Prince of Tides by Pat Conroy, The Souls of Black Folk by W.F.B. Du Bois, Tobacco Road by Erskine Caldwell, and Uncle Remus of all things. So these are classic books, and I was thrilled to be uh, listed among them. Now, I guess all of these books, it said in the title of the of the thing when they publicized it was 25 books that every Georgian should read. So the, so it was required right there. I know that you had mentioned before that reading about Savannah and Treasure Island kind of piqued your interest at one time in the city and, and 
it's kind of funny that now your book has now transcended that. And as people come to Savannah after they read your book or when they're reading it or because of that, how does that feel? I mean, did you ever imagine that that's the level it would get to? Or um, was that kind of the hope all along? Um, or how, do, how does that feel? Well, while I was writing it, I thought to myself, I have no idea how well this book is going to sell. But I know for a fact that anybody who reads it will be entertained. No question. I was sure of that. Absolutely positive. And as it happened, they were entertained. And it, 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 what it did is it, it uh, spiked sales. And the best way of selling a book is word of mouth. I mean, you can put it, you can put ads in publications, but word of mouth is the strongest sales tool that there is. And word of mouth carried this book and still does. Um, and uh, the, uh, I'll tell you one thing, while one effect it had on Savannah is as far, more people came to visit Savannah than ever before. I remember distinctly that Travel and Leisure every year had a list of the most popular uh, destinations in America for travel, where they would go. And they, they had a list of the 100 most popular desti uh, destinations, domestic destinations. Savannah was not even one of them, one, not even one out of them 100. And suddenly in, I think it was 1994 or 1995, it was number nine out of nowhere. And the book had come out, you see. And after that, it was always in the top 10. And weirdly enough, I'm not kidding. I got, when I opened my uh, computer this morning, there was uh, a list, Travel and Leisure's list for the, the past year. And uh, Savannah is number three. It's Charleston, Santa Fe, Savannah. Then New, New Orleans, it's, it's ahead of New Orleans and New York. And San Antonio, Chicago, I'm just reading from the list. Bend, Oregon, I had never heard of Bend, Oregon. And then I read about it this morning and it's quite a nice place. It's <laughs> uh, Williamsburg, Virginia and Honolulu. Well, Savannah really has graduated into the big leagues, which it did the minute the book came out. Now that pleases me enormously because I, I, I thought, and as I said to people in Savannah, uh, the book is doing well by me and I hope Savannah, uh, you know, do, does well because of the book and, and they have them. It really was, it uh, revived a flagging economy in Savannah. Absolutely. It's funny that you mentioned that travel and leisure list because that's part of what we uh, help with a lot at Visit Savannah. And so we, when we get those lists, it's always a really big deal. And it's funny that you mentioned Charleston being number one. And I really loved in the book how you did kind of portray a little bit of the healthy kind of competition between Charleston and Savannah. There's, there's you know, I, I think a healthy um, competitive feeling between the residents of both cities and, and kind of the preferences of one or, one or the other. Um, but we're hoping that Savannah comes out as number one, one of these years. <laughs> well, uh, it's going to be tough because Charleston is a bigger city and it has a few more elements to offer tourists, I guess. I mean, it's, I don't know. I think uh, it doesn't lack for charm or interest, but I, I, I don't know. I, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't compare one with the other. But in the very beginning, Charleston was this big brute of a, of, a, of a destination and Savannah was yet unknown. Only the name was known, nothing else was known about it. So it's made up a lot of distance and it's, you know, it's, it's pulling its own weight beautifully. After the book came out and 
obviously a lot more people recognized you and knew who you were. Um, how did that feel? And, and did you prefer kind of being a little more anonymous as you were writing or, or was it, was it nice to have, have the recognition? Um, what, what are your thoughts on that? Well, it was nice to have the recognition. Um, and even when I'm often, when I was having a dinner in a restaurant in Savannah, people would come up to the table and that was nice too, a certain amount of nice. <laughs> uh, but that's been 24, 27 years, I mean, 27 years. And in that time, I've got white hair. So I'm not that recognizable. When the book came out, I was on TV all the time. I was on Good Morning America seven times. I was on all sorts of national television shows. And so I was recognized all over, not just in Savannah, but in New York, and uh, all over New York. And so that was, you know, encouraging. That was nice. It was fun. And, and that, that fades after a while because I, I'm not on TV all the time anymore. Jim Williams, being a part of the queer community in Savannah and a part of the LGBT community here, um, is just is so tactfully written and, and so beautifully written, um, but in so much honesty and rawness. And can you just share a little bit more about the very positive impact that that's had, not just here in Savannah, but globally for that community of people? Right. Um, I had no agenda. I, I found the story of Jim Williams and, and uh, Chablis, both of them gay, I thought those stories were compelling and I didn't, it didn't even occur to me what effect that would have on the public's view of gay life and gay people. I didn't think about it. And when the book came out, a lot of reviewers said it's a post gay book. In other words, this is a book about a city. It's not a book about gay. It's not a book that, you know, where the topic is homosexuality or straights. Um, so I thought that was interesting. A lot of reviewers made that comment. Um, in other words, the, the LGBT community was seen as part of a bigger uh, population. It's just one uh, aspect of Savannah and other cities. So it was taken in stride. And I think that was a huge advance right there. Whenever you were approached then as the book, you know, saw the success that it did and, and they decided to make it into a movie, um, kind of walk us through how that happened in the process there for, for bringing it to the screen. All along, I thought, well, this is going to make the book much more famous and that many more people are going to know about the book. More people than uh, there are readers. People, there aren't that many people who read books, but many more people who go to movies. So I thought, well, I don't know how it's going to be good or not so good, but it doesn't matter because the book's going to become very famous and it's going to uh, sell more copies. And certainly a lot of people who find out about the movie, or rather about the book through the movie, are going to read the book and are going to become fans of the book. So I thought it was a great um, advantage and I was pleased about it, no doubt. Uh, and I didn't worry that it would distort the book. You know, I, I didn't know how good it was going to be or how bad it was going to be. But I just thought, just roll with the punches and see what happens. I found it really interesting. You were, I think it was a, a Savannah Morning News article I was reading that in the article talking about Kevin Spacey's performance and how it was based off of audio recordings that he had from uh, from the trials after Jim had had taken a, a Xanax or, or something to try and relax because it was so stressful and everything. And so he was a little bit muted in his performance in, in, the, in the movie. And I was just curious to hear more about that and kind of what, what your other thoughts were about the movie, if there's anything you would, you would change or things oh, that you really loved. That's an interesting story there because his portrayal of Jim was ex 
very strange. I mean, I knew Jim very well. He was dynamic and he had a strong voice and, and he spoke with conviction. Uh, and he was a very compelling guy. But Kevin Spacey's performance was strangely uh, dizzy. I mean, he was almost in a, in a haze. He spoke, we didn't have the strength of Jim Williams' uh, conversation, his, his speaking uh, uh, voice. And I thought, what? why is he doing this? Because he's, uh, Spacey's a very good mimic. He could do any, uh, and he's brilliant at it. He could do any uh, accent. And he certainly could have Jim, done Jim Williams better than he did. But I didn't understand. Then I thought, I went back to the filming of the book. And one afternoon I said to John Cusack, you know, I've got tapes of my interviews with Jim that Kevin might want to listen to because it shows him in a relaxed setting in his, in his living room, just batting about ideas and stories with me with no tension, no, 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 you know, just sort of conversational. He was funny, he was, you know, just a good storyteller. And I said, he might get something out of this. And uh, so Q's like, that's terrific. So he took the next day or so, I, I came to him and he said, Kevin says that he doesn't need your tape because he's listened to tapes of the trial. And I thought, well, Jim Williams on trial for his life is not the same as Jim Williams telling you his life story in the in the, in the comfort of his living room with a drink at hand. I thought that was kind of silly of Kevin Spacey to not to take advantage of that offer. So then when he, he, he appeared in the movie in this strangely uh, dazed uh, way, I thought, my God, what happened in the trial, that, in the third trial, uh, is that he'd been told by his lawyer, Jim, don't be so arrogant. When you're on the stand, you're being cross-examined by the district attorney. Don't be arrogant. You're sitting up there and you're snarling at him. You're being very vain and, and, and you know, pompous and like a prince or a king. You know. He said, cool it. Just be nicer, gentle. So Jim said, I don't know if I can manage that. So before Jim, during the third trial, I was sitting outside the courtroom with Jim and he was about to go in. Uh, about a half hour later, and he said, I, I gotta take a Valium. So we took a Valium. And that's when that voice happened, that sort of far away, the dream voice that he spoke the rest of the trial with. And even the district attorney noticed it and said to the, to the um, crowd in this courtroom, and even today you can hear him, He's just too detached to care. We're not even paying attention. A, so he made fun of Jim's uh, dreamy um, delivery. And I think that's because of the Valium. And he was trying not to be arrogant and uh, obnoxious uh, in answering questions from the district attorney. And it's because he drugged himself that he, he came up weirdly. That's and Kevin Spacey didn't know that's because of the Evalium and he didn't have the advantage of listening to Jim tell wonderful stories on my tape as I interviewed him. So he lost that uh, advantage. And he came up with a so-so portrayal of a very dynamic man. Was there anything else in the movie that, did John Cusack have to, you know, study you or was he kind of made his own character or how, how did all of that happen? Because so many people were such distinct characters. Uh, 
I, I, I think he was very good, but I don't know that he tried to, uh, he, he met me, we spoke many, many times. I don't think he was copying my voice or anything like that. I think he just went with the, 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 the book and the script and he did a, you know, a John Cusack job. I think it was fine. The portrayal was one that I liked a lot. So no complaint at all. Yeah. Did, did they always know that Lady Shibley would play herself or was there any talk at any point about having another person cast in that role or was it always going to be her? Well, she announced to the press, she said, I, I am going to play Lady Shibley and if they cast somebody else, there won't be a movie. So she was joking. Wow. She was joking. <laughs> so Clint met her. I introduced her to him and him to her. And he went and saw her at the club. And afterwards, he thought it was compelling. He thought she was fantastic, but he didn't know how she was going to be on camera. And he said to, to Cusack one time, he said, this is either going to be brilliant or unviewable. He didn't know. He took a chance. And she was great. She was really wonderful. So now we have the book and the movie, and it's been made into an audio book, of course. Um, I was doing a little bit of reading and saw that at one time there was a little bit of an effort to have a musical created. And I was just curious if you could share more about what happened there and, and kind of if it's ever been brought back uh, into discussion and, and just learn some more about, about that uh, project. Well, as a matter of fact, it's been like 10 years. It bounced around and didn't get anywhere. There was even a, a, a a writer who tried to do a script, and it was Alfred Yuri who wrote Driving Miss da Daisy. And he was a, I only got an Emmy, or rather a, a, a Tony for that. He got an Oscar, he, got, he won a Tony, an Oscar, and an Emmy. So he was trifecta, got them all. And, but he never understood my book, really. He didn't understand Savannah. He was from, his family was from Georgia, but so Atlanta, pretty much, and I, and you know, there's a huge difference between Savannah and Atlanta, really huge. And I don't think he understood it. And uh, he, and the first thing he said to me, and to the producers, was uh, he was excited about doing Midnight, uh, and he said, "Well, we can get rid of Chablis because we have already have had uh, uh, Casual Full on Broadway, which was drag thing, and so he missed the point there. And with ten years, we didn't get it." So uh, what happened recently is that the producers didn't give up. They had already pulled in uh, the, the director, Rob Ashford, who's been part of discussion for many years. And he's terrific. Um, and they decided to try some more and they got uh, Taylor Mack, uh, who's brilliant, funny and very ingenious to write a script. And they've got uh, Robert Jason Brown, Jason Robert Brown, to write the music and the lyrics. And I have heard the first act, and I think we're on our way. And that was only uh, three weeks ago. So, oh, that's super exciting. Yes, it is. And uh, who knows what's going to happen from now on? I can't promise anything. And I, I don't, I'll, you know, I count my chickens when they're hatched. Um, <laughs> But this thing has been bouncing around for so long. And apparently, this is what happens on Broadway. I don't know. Not, not my cup of tea, I gotta say. But I'm delighted that it's going to be, a, if it is a musical, I have no idea whether I'm going to hate it or love it, but that doesn't matter. 
they can do their best. And what I've heard so far is very good. So, we're, as I say, we're on our way. Taylor Mack is someone you may not have heard of, but he's caused a sensation in the theater community. Uh, he did a 24-hour history of popular music that lasted 24 hours, performance 24 hours, and that made a huge impact in the theater community. He's extremely clever, clever and bananas, and he has jumped into this with both feet. He came up with uh, an outline within days after being uh, approached uh, to, to write a script, and I think we're in really good hands with him because he not only understands the book, he's taking it to another level. The musical script is fewer than 100 pages. It's because it takes so long. I mean, uh, the songs take up a lot of time and moving around the stage takes time. So there's, there's less of a script for movies and for the musical than there was in the book, of course. I am very excited to hear that the project is still ongoing and maybe one day we'll see it on stage in Savannah. That would be pretty cool to see it where it's taking place. Well, um, it's possible that uh, before it lands on Broadway, it will be doing workshops, performances in out of town, which could be Savannah, could be. I, I, have, it, I have it on good record that the Savannah Theater would be, the folks over there would be very interested and in, in very, very honored to be involved in any way. <laughs> What is it that you think kind of shifting gears, you know, Savannah has evolved a lot in the last 30, 40 years, and a lot of that's thanks to the success of the book and everything, but as Savannah continues to grow in popularity for, you know, locals as well as visitors, um, what do you think Savannah can do to really maintain the quirky charm and, and uniqueness that that is presented so well in the book? Well, I would say keep appreciating your oddballs. They're the ones who carry the act forward. That's a big goal of this podcast too, is, is and part of the reason we started it. And then the title of the, the show, Anything But Ordinary, is to really, to focus on that, to focus on the oddballs and, and shed some light on why we are a little bit different. See, those people, I was always intrigued by eccentric people because they, those people are artists. They create their own personas. They, they're very creative. And I, and I was like, what happens in Savannah is, you know, um, as I said, it's gossip, gossip city, uh, town, and uh, the people who are gossiped about, the, the eccentric people, uh, know that they are appreciated, if only because they give people something to talk about. So that encourages them to be stranger to stranger, to, you know, increase their popularity. I think that uh, what's unusual about Savannah should be encouraged. What makes it different from other cities should be encouraged. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Savannah, Georgia, Anything But Ordinary. This podcast has been brought to you by Visit Savannah, the official destination marketing organization for Savannah, Georgia and the surrounding area, produced by Tyler Edick and hosted by Shannon Lowry. Make sure you subscribe to us on your favorite listening platform, Follow us on social media at Visit Savannah and learn more at visitsavannah.com.